and welcome to another episode of Staging a Podcast. I'm John, your host, and this week I'll be talking with Larry Meislevic of the band Skayfish. Uh, they were the first punk band in Chicago. They were also quite ahead of their time. Um, I'd say you could also put them into the uh, into the indie and new wave and alternative platforms, which, you know, was a big change for, you know, 1976. Um, Larry was gracious enough to be able to give me some of his time in between uh, setting up his set and playing a show with his current band, Smolin and Friends. So uh, the episode is a little short because we were, we were short on time, but we did hit a lot of interesting talking points, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy it. So make sure to go to the Instagram and Facebook pages for staging a podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe, interact with me over there. Uh, also don't forget to share this episode with a friend, you know, just telling one person is great. It'll, uh, one person ends up being two people, ends up being three people. You know how that story goes, start rolling the ball downhill and it's just going to going to get bigger so to keep things going on over here let's uh like share subscribe interact i love talking to other people so without further ado let's get to the interview with larry meislevic i'm with larry meislevic today and we're going to talk a bit about his uh history of music and you know growing up uh Growing up, being a drummer since, what, about six years old, Larry? Well, actually, I first started playing, uh, <clears throat> well, I was a little drummer boy in a play when I was around nine, ten years old. Okay. At the grade school. And then my parents would buy me these toy drums for cri Christmas with cardboard heads that you'd bust, like, the minute you started hitting on them. So I knew I wanted to play drums, but I wasn't really into it until I saw the Beatles on February 9th, 1964. And when I saw Ringo, I said that's what I want to do yeah and after that I begged my parents for drums it took a year but when I got drums I got one of the finest Ludwig sets uh, I think they were saving for a year to get them bought them from foster music which is used to be car or was then turned into Carnes over in Hammond and I got a really nice Ludwig set and I started playing and I got in my first band when I was around 12 years old okay so then uh you know, you ended up going, where'd you go to for, for college? Because you got a degree, right? Yeah, I went to DePaul University in, in Chicago, okay. uh, up up in a loop there on Jackson Boulevard. I, I did four years, uh, and I took a degree in music, so I, I learned all the percussion instruments, um, you know, all the mallets, marimbas, timpani, all that or orchestral stuff. Yeah. And uh, I ended up buying a lot of that stuff. I'd work in the mills in the summer as a laborer and save the money up and then I would buy like some timpani or gongs or or something like that yeah so what what was your initial plan then you know going and getting a music degree were you planning on uh you know teaching or well that's what I could have done with it I could have taught in a college or whatever you know but that wasn't what I wanted to do I always wanted to play rock and roll music yeah and, and you know hit the big time if that's what you want to call it you know, so I was always in bands throughout that period. I played with Stoneground Kelly, different bands. Mark Rogers and me played together. She's when uh, 1973 we were playing together in bands. 
Uh, Mark's a guitarist in the area. He's very well known. So, I mean, I just kept playing with different people in the area. Yeah. So then, you know, mid-late 70s, you ended up getting hooked up with the Skayfish Band. Well, so. I started teaching at Carnes Music. I started teaching drum lessons. And somehow my name got around that I, I you know, had a music degree and I had drums, <laughs> which was essential. And Skayfish heard about it, and he, he was looking for a drummer. So that was 1976. Okay. And I started playing with him. I went down to his basement. And at first, I don't know what to expect. I mean, this was the weirdest thing I've ever dealt with, the weirdest music. Yeah. Although, I always was into Frank Zappa okay. and oddball music. I never was really into too much mainstream, but I liked the oddball stuff like Zappa and Captain Beefheart and all that. So, getting into Skatefish was, yeah, this sounds very interesting, because he was, him, he too was a child prodigy keyboard player. I mean, the guy's incredible on keyboards. So... Uh, I joined them in 76, we struggled along, got a manager. Scott Cameron became our manager, I think around 77 or 78. Scott managed Muddy Waters, Mighty Joe Young, um, all these blues are, and Stan Kenton, and Willie Dixon. Okay. So Scott was looking for a rock band, and boy, he found one. (laughs) Yeah. He found one of the wildest ones. But he always believed in us, and then he got us hooked up with uh, Miles Copeland, who managed the police and who had a record company, IRS Records. Right. And that's how we got signed to Miles Copeland. Okay. So, um, actually, you know, with the uh, the Skafish era of things, I actually reached out to Jim, oh. and I asked him if there was anything that he thought would be interesting to bring up here. And he said that um, when you guys were touring in August of 1980 with the police, XTC, UB40, English Beat, Squeeze, and I guess early U2 was there, too. Uh-huh. Um, you ended up having an equipment trailer overturn <laughs> in France? We were uh, headed to the next town. I don't know where we were. I, I'd have to look at the old itinerary. But we were rounding a hill, like a kind of a mountainous country, but not, not mountains like you know it was like the Rockies, but the hills. And we were rounding a hill, and all of a sudden we see a... I mean, a 50-foot trailer, yeah. a semi-trailer on its side, blocking the road. Well, it turns out that was one of two trailers that was, or two semis that was carting all our band's equipment, you know, mm-hmm. all the sound gear, and every band, you know, was in those semis, and it was on, it must have took a, a sharp curve, fell over. Jimmy Sons, by the way, was our road manager, our tour manager. Okay. Jimmy Sons, of course, Gloria, Shadows of Night, really great guy, and he was driving our, we had a van we rented, you know, to go out around France and yeah we all stopped and helped uh, unload the equipment so the crane could come and r- put the right side the right side right side, <laughs> right side <laughs> and the semi. my drums some of them got wrecked oh gosh yeah one of my original snares turned into a little egg and uh, what was cool about it though when we got back to London they told me go into this uh, music uh, place and just pick out what I thought was destroyed and oh and nice it all, so. well that's good yeah um you know that would that would be pretty wild, you know, and especially that seems like a pretty big tour because, you know, by that point, what? 1980. Uh, by by that point, the police were probably touring on their second album. Yes. You know, they weren't quite to synchronicity yet. Might have been Zenyatta Mandata. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it was huge crowds. I mean, we were playing old arenas like in France, like like old, uh, like maybe gladiator arenas and stuff. I mean, huge places and it was packed i mean it was a really that's where they filmed us for urg the movie you know urg a music war the movie we yeah were in. 
that was in Fréjus, France. And I think it was that night. It might have been a different night. I'm standing. I always stood backstage and watched Stewart and stuff. You know, we yeah. watched the bands. And I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, next to me, I look over, and my guitar player is on my right, and I go, "Is that George Harrison standing next to me?" He goes, "No, that's Bill Wyman of the Stones." Oh gosh. See, we were in the south of France. Yeah. And I think a lot of them lived down there at the time in the Riviera and all that. Uh, and so, yeah, Bill Wyman standing next to me and <laughs> watching the police too. Yeah, cool. that's a pretty wild, uh, yeah. pretty wild night, you know. And um, I know, being a musician myself, you know, being able to stand side stage or, you know, um, one of my favorite drummers is Jimmy Chamberlain from the Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, great player, but he also plays in jazz band. Oh, okay. So I've gone to some jazz clubs and, you know. I stood right at the end of the bar and was able to to see. I'll actually I'll show you a video here uh, after we get done that's recording. That's what's cool about it when you can go up that close and and see people that you normally see on a big stage. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you had brought up Miles Miles Copeland, Stewart's brother. Yes. Um, Jim also says that you're not one to brag, but there was something that Miles said about his, having two favorite drummers. That would be his brother Stuart and you. <laughs> you remember that? I do remember him telling me that. I maybe I don't know. Maybe he was just pumping me. I don't know. But Miles did like my playing because he's the one who was instrumental getting me into Iggy Pop. Oh, perfect. I mean, it, he got me the gig. Yeah, so. I was get, I was just getting ready to try and figure out how that ended up going. So. He just he just knew you and knew that well Ig needed needed somebody to play what, with. What had happened was, in 1981, the scene out here was really dead. So I was with a cover band in between, you know, touring with Skatefish, and the guy says, "Let's move out to California." Okay. So we did. We moved out to Los Angeles. I lived in actually El Segundo, which is right where the airport is. And uh, I started working in a health food store because I was always into health foods and working out and all that. And I called Miles up one day. I says, hey, uh, just so you know, I'm living in California now. If, if you hear any bands, need a drummer that comes up, let me know. Yeah. Well, I waited, waited, waited. I don't know how many months went by. All of a sudden, I get a call. He goes, hey, Iggy Pop needs a drummer. Call him up. Here's his number. I already told him. You're the guy for the gig. And see what he says. So I called uh, Jim up. Jim Osterberg is his real name, James Iggy. I, he says, oh, Miles told me you're really good. He goes, just send me a tape of some stuff. He goes, and, and we're going on tour in a couple of months, and I need a drummer. So I sent him a tape, called me back, or he sent me a letter and said, uh, yeah, you're in the band. Uh, my manager will get a hold of you. Uh, we'll schedule rehearsals out in New York. Okay. So that's how that went down. And then, you know, when the time came, I flew out to New York, and uh, we started rehearsing. So who else was playing in, in the in the band at that time? It had a great lineup. Uh of course, Jim, Iggy, but then we had Frankie Infanti, who was Blondie's guitar player. Okay. See, what happened was Blondie had broken up or had gone on a hiatus, and they weren't doing anything. Frankie decided to, you know, work with Jim, so he was our guitar player. Rob Dupre had just wrote the album that we were touring on, a Zombie Birdhouse. Rob had been in The Mumps and been on that TV show with Lance Loud. Okay. And Mike Page, big I call him Big Mike Page, huge bass player, big tall guy. He played with Chubby Checker and the New York Dolls. So, you know, we had a lot of uh, people that had been in the business, so that's what I walked into, you know, and it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty That's pretty rad. You got some, some great artists there. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, love the Dolls myself. Um, so <clears throat> I want to think, you know, and this is going back in time. Well, actually, you know what? Let me stick here for a second because 
that time there, you're probably looking, what, 82, 83? On the... I played with, with Iggy in 82 and in 83. Okay. And you were in between, or were, were you still in between Skafish albums yeah, at the I, time? Yeah, I was still, uh, that's interesting. When I was touring with Iggy, Jim decided, Skafish decided to start the second album. And I was on tour, but he wanted to use me on drums. So what would happen was we, I'd play a gig with Iggy at night. In the morning, I would fly out to Chicago. We recorded at Pumpkin Studios, which is like Gary Loizo from the uh, American Breed. Okay. Who, you know, uh, Bend Me, Shake Me. He owned a studio. He recorded Sticks and all these bands. Anyway, we, Jimmy Sounds would pick me up at O'Hare Airport. I'd fly in and then come to the studio, record my tracks, fly out and play a gig that <laughs> And I think I did that two or three times to yeah. do my, my basic tracks, if I'm not mistaken. That's a lot of travel. Yeah, it was yeah. crazy because I wasn't sleeping. But, uh, you know, like I say, I always, on the road, I always looked for a, a gymnasium and a health food store because I was always into working out, lifting weights. and So I was kind of yeah. had that energy. You know, you know I didn't drink it. I didn't drink and all that stuff uh, and being a drummer you know i mean you're the one that's constantly moving the whole show you know you you really need that endurance you need the endurance yeah i don't think you can go on stage and be uh, screwed up no or you shouldn't be or I, maybe some guys can do it i never would do it no. so um were you touring with skatefish then uh at the time when you played cbgb's the first time with the oh, cramps yeah. i was with skatefish on every show he did from 76 to 85. Okay. In fact, we put together another tour after I got done with Iggy playing with him. I think it was 84 or 85 maybe. Scott Cameron booked us out on a West Coast tour with Skatefish. So I was living out there at the time, so it was not, we rented a, a rehearsal studio out there. And okay. we did a little tour of California at that time. Well, that sounds fun. See, I, I just think it's cool. I mean, you know, you were the drummer of the first Chicago punk band. You could you could argue that you know Jim on keys and uh, your other keyboard player Javier Javier, Javier. yeah Phenomenal. Javier Cruz Phenomenal. Uh, that you know they really started what ended up becoming called new wave right you know so <clears throat> just thinking of being the first punk band in Chicago to make their way out to New York play CBGBs you're playing with the Cramps you've got I heard there were Ramones in mm-hmm. in the audience oh yeah. You know, that's just, for for me, you know, looking back as a fan, that would be totally a, now, a wild experience. Now, I guess Scafish would be considered punk, but if you listen to his music, it's it's jazz, it's atonal, it's it's a lot more. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've, you've probably... Oh, I've listened. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, there's a lot of going on there that, uh, you know, with the harmonies mm-hmm. and, the, and the keyboard. Javier uh, was a whiz on the, on the synthesizer. And I ended up with his Mellotron. I bought his Mellotron, by the way. Oh, nice. <laughs> I love um, the Mellotron. I bought it, and I still have it. But, yeah, so, I mean, there was a lot more going on than just, like, say, like, the Sex Pistols or something. Right. Like four-piece guitar band. I mean, Jim was, Jim's a prodigy on piano. I mean, he's a Liberace, I mean. Yeah. So. And that's the nice thing about, what the thing that I love about First Wave of Punk is, you know, you you had the bands that were coming out that weren't just that straight mm-hmm. for you know, four chord, downstroke, you know, sure you had the Ramones, you had the Pistols. Right. Uh, but then you also had bands like Skatefish, like the Talking Heads, right. like Blondie so coming out. There you go, like Talking Heads, uh, 
you know, Blondie, they weren't punk. I think they were what we would call new wave. Yeah. They were the new wave because we were getting, we were trying to break through that dinosaur rock thing. I mean, I got nothing against Journey and, and the hair bands. But I mean, that was what we would refer to as dinosaur rock. I mean, that was that was the established number one top 40 type oh, yeah. rock. And the new wave bands that came out, you know, were all trying to break away from that. They weren't so much going to get that much airplay or make a million dollars, but they were doing something different, you know, something a little bit... Yeah, and it, it completely ushered in, you know, if you just go through the, the first stage, the second the second stage, like, you know, when Naked Ray Gun and stuff started playing around around 80, and then, you know, moving into the 90s, and now you've got punk that's actually finally hitting mainstream and right. Green Day and Offspring. Right, right. You know, it, it definitely... Scavish was before his time. Yeah. He, he, he came out when people were still as scared of what he was and what he represented, and... And I don't think they were ready for Skatefish at that time. It's a shame because, I mean, he's super talented. So let's see. Oh, there was another Larry in the band. Larry Maslin. Yeah, you guys, the the rhythm section. How how did you guys differentiate each other? I've never been in a band with another John. So. Well, I mean, I was Little Larry, I think they called me. Okay. Yeah, I think they called me Little Larry because he was taller is big Larry. Yeah. Okay. That was just one of those one of those little goofy things that I that I had thought about. Um oh what do you remember about that Sean and I show? Oh my God. Some for somehow someone thought we were a mainstream rock band and they booked us at the Airy Crown Theater with Sean and I. Now I gotta admit I've seen a lot of bands at the Airy Crown before then and I'd always say, God I'd like to be on that on that stage. On that stage, yeah. All of a sudden, I'm on that stage, and I'm looking out, you know. But what it was, there was a convention going on in Chicago, and um, there were a lot of families there. I don't know what was going on at the Erie Crown Theater at the time, but there were a lot of families and stuff there. And here comes Skafish, and we're totally off the wall. Right. Totally 180 degrees opposite of Sean and I doing the greasy 50s doo-wop stuff. Yeah. So here we go, we're, we're, we're in, and Jim starts, you know, going into the woman's bathing suit and just, you know and i think halfway through our show they pulled us off stage oh golly because it was like hey they're gonna riot out there these parents were covering their daughter's eyes mm-hmm. you know, like because yeah i mean you know, he's doesn't look like your normal rock and roll guy yeah no you know he's he's Kind of got like a, Gangly, you know, and, androgynous, 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 yeah. and in you know in that in that era, you know, kind of the mop top yeah, look, but then he also was kind of like uh, um, a little bit like Nosferatu ish, mm-hmm. you know, um, which hey, it, it's great. It's they a persona. No, yeah, they weren't ready for it. No, but but that, that, yeah, they pulled us off in about I think forty minutes or so. Oh, let's see. Um, you know Larry Gatlin? He he played with Prince. He was he was in the in the scene early on, but you mean not Larry Gatlin? Or sorry, Lee Gatlin. Lee Gatlin. He was our Lee. bass player when we did the tour with the Police. Okay. He came after Larry Maslin, after Greg Sarche. Sorry, I misread um, my notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lee Gatlin. Oh, a tremendous 
tremendous uh, bass player. By the way, he became the fire chief in Minneapolis after that. Really? Yeah, he, he, I think he's retired now, but he was the fire chief in Minneapolis. So that's great. You <laughs> play play with these bands, you go play with Prince, yeah. and then you end up becoming a fire chief. That's, yeah. You know, and that's Lee was wonderful. Incredible. He's in that movie, uh, Erg. Erg, he's up yeah. up playing bass on that, yeah. Um, now, you know, is that streaming anywhere? It's on uh, YouTube. Okay. Yeah, you can see our... our our, our song that we did all you know on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. It's called Sign of the Cross. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Good, good song. You know, if if you're a super religious person, maybe uh, well, maybe it's not the one for you. you There's other ones. Right. You gotta understand, <laughs> Jim. I mean, I was brought up Catholic. I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. DePaul's a Catholic college, I guess. But Jim was indoctrinated in the Catholic faith. He played organ in the church and all that, and he got. They, they kind of shunned him so much that, you know, being odd, yeah. that I think he rebelled against that, and that was some of his rebellion. Yeah, and, you know, being, um, grow, I grew up Catholic as well, and, you know, I did the altar boy, the choir sure, boy I mean, thing, you know, boy, I, yeah. the, the same the same stuff that pretty much all of us do, especially yeah. when we go to Catholic school, it's like, right. nope, here's something you're going to do. And you're um, really pushed into a lot of it. Yeah, and... I think you know, too much. I, I think it's funny for me being the redheaded Irish kid at an Irish Catholic school, and I was the ah. one getting beat up for being redheaded. Oh, wow. So, you know. Well, at it, least you weren't a redheaded stepchild. Right? No, no, no. <laughs> nope. Firstborn. That's crazy, you're right. But yeah, that stuff's wild. So, um, I know, you know, you're playing here tonight with, with your uh, band you're in right now. Uh, yeah, Smolin and Friends. It's Jeremy Smolin is the guitar player we're talking with. Okay. Yeah, I've been playing with him for about six months. It's a fun band. I mean, we have a lot of fun, and uh, it's fun to play. You know, yeah. and, uh, I, I enjoy playing, and uh, wherever I'm playing, it's it's playing the drums. You know, I got so many drum sets that I like to switch them out and bring out a different drum set. And yeah, I don't just, blame you. Just a, you know, like a guitar player likes to change guitars. You know, right? Oh gosh, there used to be shows where I'd bring six with me just just yeah. because you know. Yeah. Oh, I have to have a backup for each tuning. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, no, no, I just wanted to show off. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> so, yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, hearing what you got. I know... It's, for, it's cover band. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're not breaking any uh, walls, but Jeremy's a good... Our, our singer, uh, Gloria, is a really good singer. Uh, Sam just got back from uh, Florida. He was there for three months. We had substitute bass players. Sam. Okay. Oh, and John Chorney on, on keyboards is really good. He can really solo. Yeah. He just, he just, he plays a lot of blues band and stuff too. Mm-hmm. So now in whatever other downtime you currently have, do you do any lessons or anything for I haven't locals? for years. No. Uh, I used to teach at the grade school, uh, after school for the percussion kids that were trying to get through the percussion classes yeah. and stuff. And I, I taught private lessons a lot, but I just don't have the gumption to do that. Okay. It's, you know, I, I'll tell you, one of my students I did have uh, back in 76 who started with me until I left in 1980, Chris Carp. Not was, familiar with that name. He, Chris Carp plays with, uh, I can't think of the name of the band now, Crop Puppies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And a lo- amongst lo- other bands. Local heroes here. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he started taking lessons from me when he was six years old. His dad, Bernie, brings him into the car and he goes, I want my son to learn drums. I go, he can't even touch the pedals. That kid turned out to be my one and best student I ever had. And I mean, I had hundreds of students. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, everybody brings their kid in to play music. 
but the kid, you know if the kid's going to do it or if right. he goes home and he don't practice, you know, it's like you're wasting your parents' money. Mm-hmm. But but Chris was different. I knew he, yeah. he had it. And, you know, that's, a, that's one thing I like. I kind of looked down on it a little bit when I was a kid. My parents never really pushed me into anything. They didn't say, you have to do football, you have to do baseball, basketball. Right. Mine didn't either. You know, but just that parents allow their kids to get out and try, mm-hmm. hey, I, I wasn't good at any of those sports, you know. Right. Um, they, they, I tried basketball, and I'm like 5'7". Yeah. <laughs> you know, nah, hey, I maybe, ain't going to work. I'm not going to play basketball. Work in the beginning of middle school, but after yeah, about that, everybody's... In grade school, I tried. Nah. Yeah, everybody's going up past you. Now, hockey so. I liked. I was always playing goalie. Okay. I was the goalie, and I liked that. See, I, I love watching hockey, but I've never actually... Uh, yeah, never, it's fun never hit played. With a puck. Oh yeah, <laughs> eighty-five hundred miles an hour. Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> so, well, thanks for uh, giving me some time here, Larry. And um, we're gonna go back inside. I can get some dinner. Your your yeah, gig's sure. getting ready to start. So yeah, go test out a few things. And yeah, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So uh, thank you so.